Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Or maybe look forward to the time when God once again would speak through prophets and speak to Israel. But right now, nothing's happening. They are in this dead zone. They're in this time warp. And to make matters worse, they were under the authority of the Romans and they longed to be delivered. So in this spiritual state of limbo where we find Israel at this time, this spiritual stagnation, this is the background for which time that John the Baptist is born and then Jesus is born. And so picking up with the story of the birth of John the Baptist, just to set the stage for the birth of Jesus, because Luke did. It was important for some reason, and we're going to unfold why Luke wanted to include the birth of John the Baptist before he talked about the birth of Jesus. Why not just get down to the birth of Jesus? Why is this important? So every morning, every evening, every day, year after year, the priest goes in, to the temple and burns incense on the altar while the people stand around outside and pray. This ritual had literally been performed thousands and thousands and thousands of times. How many of you have sometimes felt that maybe even church service gets so cut and dried that there doesn't appear to be any fresh moving of God? If you've ever been in that position, if you've ever been where you think that things have just gotten so formalized that you can set your watch by the time that the pastor's going to walk up, that you, you know exactly how many songs the worship team is going to do, that you know who's going to be called on to end in prayer, that when somebody prays, you know what prayer they're going to pray because they say the same prayer every time. It just gets so predictable. And if you can identify with that, if you can relate to that, then try and relate to the Jews going through the same ritual morning and evening. The incense being burned, the people praying. Day after day, year after year, century after century, and God is nowhere to be felt, sensed, seen. You talk about being in a spiritual rut. And you wonder, why in the world are we doing this? God's not speaking. But here comes Zechariah. It was his rotation. And after having done this so many times in his life, walks into the temple, once again takes the incense, hearing the murmurs of the prayers outside of the temple, just as predictable as it could possibly be, he begins to burn the incense, and lo and behold, an angel appears. 400 years, nothing like this has ever happened. And he has this encounter with this angel. Because, see, Zechariah 
and Elizabeth had no children. And childlessness was a, an obvious sign of the absence of the blessing of God in this culture. Now we go back to our teaching on Genesis where God says be fruitful and multiply and he blessed them. And ever since that time that culture always considered childbearing a blessing from God. So in that culture when a, child, a couple did not bear children it was a shame. They were a public display, a public announcement of God's blessing is not on us. So Zechariah, Elizabeth, not only did they not have children, but they were now in the time of life where they were done hoping they were going to have children beyond that time of life. And the old man goes in and he lights the incense and the angel appears to him. And the angel says, do not fear, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. And your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son and you're going to call his name John. Well, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Zechariah is the first to know Elizabeth is going to have a baby. He can't wait to get home and tell his wife, you're pregnant. How do you suppose that news goes over? She says, don't you think I would be the first to know? Well, it makes you think you have an inside track on this. Well, me and God were like that. And this appearance by John, who comes in the power of God, is going to break the 400-year drought. Another prophet is coming. And John would be this man that would live this strict life of discipline and separation. He would shun the wine. He would shun the strong drink. He would live outside of society. He would be a wild man in the forest eating uh, locust and wild honey and wearing uh, uh, animal skins and, and separated because God had chosen him to have a special message for his culture and to be a forerunner for Jesus Christ. And Zechariah and Elizabeth now have word that the barrenness was over and now they're going to bear a child. And the Bible says that both of them in the sixth verse were righteous in the very sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now before we move on from the birth of John the Baptist, I want you to highlight that verse. I want you to go to that, back to that verse from time to time throughout this next year. Whenever you get to feeling like maybe things are not going in your favor and you don't know how you continue to love God and to serve Him because certainly He's not answering prayers the way you want Him to answer prayers. If you feel like you're going through the long dry spot, go look up. Luke 1, 6. And you read this account of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Both of them. A lifetime of bearing the shame and reproach of no child. A lifetime 
of having to confess, that's right, we don't have any children. God did not bless us with any children. I see he blessed you with plenty. We can't even have one child. A lifetime of this. And when you come to the end of a lifetime where you have had to live without the obvious blessings of God, you still find a couple of whom it is said they were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly because they had determined God is worthy regardless of how you feel you're blessed in life. He's still God and he's still worthy. And if Zechariah and Elizabeth can live that kind of a dedicated life to God, even with the obvious lack of blessing in their life, you can too. So quit complaining that you don't get everything from God you think you want. Just serve him with all of your heart. And then in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel makes an appearance to the young Jewish woman who is engaged to be married. And he tells this young virgin, God has given you special favor. He's chosen you to give birth to a son. And this child will be the son of God. God will give him the throne of David and he will rule over Israel forever and his kingdom will never end. And Mary is completely baffled as we can understand a young virgin would be. And said, how can this be? I've never known a man. I've had never had relationships with a man. How can I be bearing a child? And then the angel explains that the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and due to that you will conceive and the child will be the Son of God. Don't think, Gabriel says, God cannot do this. God also opened up the womb, dead womb of your cousin Elizabeth and she too is going to have a baby at this point. Mary was not aware of that. So now we've got Mary with this miracle, miraculous conception, and she just gets news that her cousin Elizabeth, who's beyond the age of bearing son, also is going to have a child. So miracles are starting to happen all over the place. A miracle, a miraculous conception, a, a miraculous opening of the dead womb, and 400 years of nothing, and all of a sudden things start popping and popping because God is now on the move. They're beginning to see things happening. And Gabriel tells Mary, do not think God can't do this. He can do this. Gabriel knows because he's been hanging out with God for millennia. He's seen God do all kinds of things. He has no doubt about what God can do. And he reinforces to Mary, don't you dare think this is beyond God's ability. I've seen him do greater things than this. Earthbound finite humans are so confounded by the miraculous, but the angels in heaven understand God. They've seen him do all kinds of things. They know he is the God of the miraculous. They're not surprised by God's miracle-working power. That's who he is. That's what he does. We're the ones that are astounded by it. The angels are just, well, what's the big deal? God does this. It's who he is. So two miraculous births. Mark the beginning of this new era. This new era. And God is officially on the move. And the drought is being broken. Now some suggest that the angel Gabriel 
is merely suggesting that later on after Mary and Joseph are married she'll give natural birth to a child that many will believe to be the son of God because they refuse to believe in the miracle of the virgin birth so let's try and explain this away she's going to have a child and he'll think he's the son of God to believe that a virgin actually can give birth to believe that Mary became pregnant without a human male donor to believe that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and caused her egg to be fertilized by DNA contributed by God it's too much for terminal skeptics to be able to process they have to try and explain it away the problem is we don't have to understand how God does things we just have to understand he can Nothing is impossible with God, Gabriel says. They, they understand that because knowing God, knowing that he can do anything, people on earth who don't understand God simply don't understand miracles. God can do anything. So Mary has to believe because it's going to become obvious to her soon enough anyway. Her challenge is going to get other people to believe this story. And when Mary finishes her conversation with Gabriel, she then begins to go on the journey to see Elizabeth. She hurries down to the hill country of Judea. And when Elizabeth hears Mary coming, Elizabeth's baby, John, leaps in the womb. I find this fascinating. You women who have born children, and that first sensation where you felt the baby move, and then some women want to involve the whole world in this. Come here and feel this. <laughs> they want everybody to feel this baby moving. Not a one of you women. I mean, the baby turns, the baby stretches, but not a one of you women have had the baby jump up and down inside of you. You may have thought they were. <laughs> But this baby leaped. He didn't roll over. He didn't stretch. He didn't bulge. He leaped inside of Elizabeth. You know why? Because in Mary just had come into their presence the Son of God. And John was the forerunner of the Son of God. And it's only appropriate that the forerunner react to the presence of the Son of God. So the first thing the forerunner does, early in this stage when Jesus is just a tiny fertilized egg, nothing but a fertilized embryo, nothing but just this little tiny spot, this little dot, doesn't even have eyelids yet. But Mary comes bearing the Son of God, and the forerunner has to react to this. He leaps in the womb because the Son of God is here. 
that's where the power of the forerunner begins in the story. And so this forerunner is born and the story in Luke fast forwards tremendously to where John is running around announcing Jesus is coming. There one is one coming after me who is mightier than I am. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. He's preparing the way. Why did Luke start with this? There was a group of Jews that came up to John. They're always looking for evidence that God is moving. And they come up to John and said, we've been talking. Are you that promised one? And see, just lest there should be any confusion as time went on. Luke brings this into the story so that people don't see a prophet and mistake him for Jesus. And John says, this is not me. The one that's coming after me, that's him. John's the one that's pointing to the real one. So we don't have to live 2,000 years later wondering which one of these was really the Messiah. That's the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the promised one that's coming. So Luke does this to get that issue out of the way. To show that, yeah, that was a miraculous birth, but it's nothing compared to the miraculous conception. Yes, he was a prophet, but he's nothing compared to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To bring a, a spotlight on the story of Jesus. Now, last week we had a little play. And these kids were up here talking about the real star. And that's kind of where I'm going with this today because the real star of this story is not John the Baptist but the real star is Jesus. John the Baptist points to Jesus. The story of John the Baptist points to Jesus. He's the real star. And so Luke brings us along to get that out of the way and now let's move on to the story of Jesus. So much greater is this story. The 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 first story is marked by a prophecy by Zechariah. But the second was marked by angelic choruses, much greater than the prophecy of a priest. Both were miracles, but the second miracle is so far greater than the first one. God opened the dead womb of, of holy men of old many times. Sarah was barren, and God opened that womb. Rachel was barren, and God opened that womb. Rebecca was barren, and God opened that womb. And Hannah was barren, and God opened that womb. But nobody had ever seen a virgin birth before. So this other one was good, but they knew it from times past. They had seen it from time to time. But now they see something they've never seen before. Incomparable. What a fascinating story surrounding the birth of Jesus. What a marvelous convergence of divinely directed events. Everything about the birth of Jesus should fill us with complete awe. I look at this and I, I, I see this complete story. I'm not going to read it to you. You're familiar with the story. Why Bethlehem? And really it just comes down to this because God said so. And you know, wouldn't it have been, from a human standpoint, so much more convenient 
for God to allow Joseph and Mary to have a child right there in Nazareth. That's where they lived. Bethlehem was 90 miles away. And they would get there walking or by donkey back. And so God, in his perfect, infinite wisdom, it looks to us like he has poorly planned this event. By human standards, God, why didn't you just say Nazareth? It's not like Joseph said to Mary, well, the prophet says we have to go to Bethlehem to do this, so let's get going. They were not fulfilling prophecy. They were just following circumstances. So God, in order to move the chess pieces like he wants them moved, then he takes advantage of Quirinius, who makes this, this decree that all the men must go to their polling place for the census and be counted. The women don't have to go. But Mary is within a couple of weeks of delivering and Joseph has to go 90 miles away for the census. And how does Joseph talk pregnant Mary into getting on a donkey and going with him? Some mysteries we will never know. I can see Mary bulging out to there saying, sure, sounds like a good vacation to me. Let's go. Can you imagine how normal people would have responded to that? Are you kidding me? You go. You can make better time without me. You can be back here before I'm due. Just go. Just get it done. Get out of here. And Joseph's got this harebrained idea. Honey, come with me. <laughs> I'll put you on a donkey. It'll be all right. And off they go. Only God knows the conversations they had on that journey. Only God knows if Mary was halfway along that journey saying, What were you thinking, Joseph? And they get to Bethlehem. Water breaks. They end up in a stable. And the child is born. She doesn't even have the joy of being at home with friends, with family, where generally it would be the best place to have a baby. There are no hospitals, you know, but at least you're surrounded. You're in your own bed. You're in your own house. No, I'm in a stable 90 miles away from home. What's with this? Because the prophet said so. Because God wanted it that way. Why? Because Micah says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So Mary and Joseph just didn't have a choice at this point. Now you know sometimes when you just can't figure out why life is so goofy. 
You just can't figure out why things aren't going the way you think it ought to go. You've got to understand in those times, it's very possible God is fulfilling his master plan in you. That it doesn't get done by staying in your cozy home. It doesn't get done by staying in your hometown. It gets done because you are put in a place of inconvenience so God can work his will, his perfect will through you. So you just got to quit complaining about God. What are you trying to do to me? Just be used by God. Let him do that for you. We just sometimes are so completely oblivious to how God's working his will in us. We look at all the competing, frustrating factors that went into to Joseph and Mary making their way to Bethlehem all because it was a part of God's plan. And sometimes in the midst of our chaos, God is perfecting his plan in us. Why a manger? We must not miss the irony of the greatest story in the history of mankind. Being set in a place of humble and lowly circumstances. Why a stable? Why a manger? So you've got this stable where it just so happens that there's no room in the inn. And... I know a lot of people are trying to dispel all the myths that go along with our traditional Christmas story. There is some question. I don't, don't be too hard on the innkeeper. I think that the, the original language indicates that it simply was not conducive to a place for her to have a baby. And it wasn't like he was angrily turning them away. But it just didn't work out that way. You understand? The innkeeper is just as much a part of the plan as anything. He's just playing along with the way God's leading. Well, they get there and there's, there's, we don't have a good place for you to have a baby here. There's a stable. And they took the stable. And Jesus is born. And they took this baby and swaddled the child. Because in those days they liked to keep the legs and the arms straight. That was important to them. Wrap them up, swaddle them. She wrapped the baby up. And then in this heart-touching mental picture, she takes her little baby and she sees this wooden feeding trough. It's full of dried animal slobber. Let's just be honest. It reeks to high heaven. And she throws a little straw in there and takes the Son of God and lays him in the feeding trough. And your heart should go out for the Son of God because you have a nice crib that Grandma and Grandpa bought you. Only the best for our grandchildren. Little boy complete with V8 engine. Got the fancy electronic mobiles floating around. Got this crib. And the Son of God is laid in a feeding trough. It's all Mary and Joseph have. 
And you can't lose the irony of the humble birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that God in His design did not allow Him to come in and be born in a palace and be born at home in the comfort of their own bedroom but it, it was under the most stressing of circumstances the most humble where they had nothing but the stuff they had packed on their back and the baby is there and they wrap him up and they put him in a feeding trough and there in that feeding trough lies the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Savior of the world. And God wanted as the background for this story the humble beginnings to remind us He did not come for the best, the rich, the wealthy, the high. He came for the lost. He came for the dying. He came for the hurting. He came for the poor. He came for the downtrodden. And he entered in the most humbling of circumstances. And God, at that point, once the baby is born, sends angels and says, now go tell people. And the angels appear, not to the kings, not to the governor. Not to the Jewish high priests. But the angels go out in the field. And in that dark sky. They light it up with their presence. And they make their announcement to shepherds. Now you have to understand what I'm saying. Shepherds were considered low class people. They were typically thieves. They were about as low as low could get. And the angels looking around the world deciding, who should we tell? Shall we go tell the Jewish king? Let's tell the Jewish king. No, I don't, don't go tell the king. Well, let's go tell the Roman emperor. No, don't tell the Roman emperor. Well, let's go back and tell Joseph and Mary's family the child. No, don't go tell them. God, who do you want us to tell? Go out there and tell the thieves. They shall be the first to know. So here's these low scum people out tending their sheep and the angels appear. And they said, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. Now who needs a message of a Savior more than a bunch of thieves? Was that not the best news to the right crowd? You low down scum of the earth. Somebody has come with salvation for you. With forgiveness for you. Today in the city of David. Today in the town of David. Is born a savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Because every person needs to hear the message that they need a savior that's what this is about I've said a savior God could have sent anything but he sent what we needed most and by the message of saying I've sent a savior God is saying the one thing you needed more than anything in this world is you needed saving that's what the world doesn't understand but they need a savior they don't need another hundred thousand dollars they don't need a better job they don't need a new wife. They need a savior. 
And God gave the world what the world needed most. The perfect gift. And then this angelic choir breaks out in this magnificent heavenly chorus. And they begin to sing this song. It says, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And after the announcement and this brief heavenly concert, the shepherds were literally starstruck. I mean, I'm intrigued by the word star. So I looked that up. I studied that a little bit. And you go back to uh, English poet Chaucer. And he's the first one we can find in written record to refer to what I would call stellification. Stellar, referring to the star. Stellification. The ascribing of the quality of the stars to human beings. Stellification. But it was a brief mention. And then we go to Shakespeare. And Shakespeare began to, he was enchanted with this idea of stellification. So he, he worked in a couple references in his work to people who are likened to stars. And we didn't see any evidence of this before that time. But now we're beginning to see people thinking of people that almost are like turning into stars when they die. People have funny ideas about what happens when you die. Some people think you become angels. Some people think you become stars. And they got all these things about the other side. Stellification. And then, as this idea begins to pick up steam, we enter the United States of America back at the turn of the century. Back when you start getting the theater moving into uh, the movie houses, the film, the early silent films. And they picked up on this theme of star because see star to them meant something that's higher than everybody else. Something that shines brightly. Something that outshines everything else around it. Something that gathers our attention. That we stand in awe. Something that is unapproachable. Something that is untouchable. Something that we worship through astrology. All of these concepts of star. And they begin to apply this to people who are famous. They are stars because they're above us. They are stars because they shine so brightly in their craft. They are stars because we are in awe in their presence. How many of you here have ever met anybody famous besides me? I don't mean I'm famous. I mean besides me meeting somebody's famous. I know what you were thinking. <laughs> on, let me see it again. How many of you have met somebody famous? I have a brother-in-law that rubbed elbows with a lot of famous people in his life and refused to be starstruck by it. I mean, this, this is a man that uh, just had the golden touch. You know, at one time he owned Phoenix International Raceway and he hosted uh, the, the races for the famous car drivers and then the, the, the golf tournaments for the famous people to come in. One time he golfed on a team with Glenn Campbell and he came back to the motorhome and told my, told my sister, his wife said, Honey, I, I, I think we won. I think we won. Well, they did. He's met all these stars just because he's in that industry, you know. And he told me all his life, he said, These are just people. Just people. He said, There's no reason to get all starstruck. They're just people. But you know, in, in the United States, we worship stars. We get in the presence of famous people and we get nervous. Ooh, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Uh, there's none of them that are deserving of that. I promise you. Except Jesus. 
He's the only one. And these shepherds were the first people that were really truly ever starstruck because they come and said, into this, into the city of David is born today a savior. And they just couldn't wait to see him. They, they, they ran from where they were. They wanted to go back and see the baby Jesus. They were starstruck by the true star. He became the focal point of all history. Everything in history led up to his appearance and everything since looks back to his appearance. He is what this is all about. It's a shame that the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ has to be shared with some fantastical myth about a jolly Santa with a shop full of elves at the North Pole whose only occupation it is to make free toys for spoiled children. And magically deliver them once a year. It's a shame about the commercialization of Christmas that they have managed to bury the star. It's a shame we went through an era where saying Merry Christmas was called politically incorrect. I th I'm, I'm so grateful we can freely say Merry Christmas this year, but I'm even more grateful we can sing glory to God in the highest, that we can talk about the birth of the real star of the season. Without saying that that doesn't have any place in our dialogue today and most certainly does it is the center focal point of all the history of man you know uh, of those between the ages of 18 and 29 only 39 percent will this year celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday the numbers are a little bit better for those who are 65 and older 66% of those 65 and older will celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday. So tomorrow's Christmas. Today you've done your religious duty. You're done with it, right? Go have secular Christmas. I wonder how many of you will make Christmas Day a religious holiday in your house. Because he, he is the star. Would you bow your heads?